Blog Talk Radio. Hi everyone, this is Camille from sunny California, and you're listening to the Coffee Chat with Camille show, which is a podcast series that interviews various guests about real-life topics for people who love to learn. Hi everyone, this is Camille, your host. Today our topic is transforming personal trauma into complex and likable characters. Our wonderful guest is Guy Morris. I'm just going to tell you a little bit about him before he comes on into the studio. He's retired from a 36-year leadership career with Fortune 100 software, high-tech, and global energy. Guy Morris has also been a published songwriter for Disney Records, screenplay writer for Sojourn Entertainment, a patented inventor, a Coast Guard charter captain, a paddy diver and adventurer, and now an author and publisher of intelligent, well-researched thrillers. Okay. Uh, You can um, buy books, it looks like, at his um, website, which is GuyMorrisBooks.com, and it's inside of the description. And also, this this episode will be in our... um, on our website, okay, and then you'll just look for the heading, Transforming Personal Trauma into Complex and Likeable Characters with Guy Morris. All right, so we're going to let him on into the studio and get started with our interview. I'm so excited. Hi, Guy. Hi, Camille. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm, I'm honored and a pleasure to be here. Hi, you're welcome. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. Um, we're going to go ahead and get started with our interview. So can you tell sure. us about about yourself and what makes you unique? Um, well, I, I think a number of things. I'm, I'm, I'm not your typical executive. I'm not your typical author. I, I did start off. I have had a lot of diverse experiences in life, um, starting with, from the tragic and the difficult through the successful and, and, the, and, the, and the fun. Um, I started life at, in an abusive home, uh, alcoholic home, drug um, violent home. I left. I actually was a 13-year-old runaway on the streets of Los Angeles um, for about several months um, before I, I went home long enough to earn a GED, and I was able to get a GED because out of the 10th grade, I quit after the 10th grade because I had been working um, to support myself. I had been working alongside migrant workers for a number of years and frequently lied about my age in order to get a job. And those work credits allowed me to basically graduate high school. Um, the, the, the downside was is that I had a GED, which allowed me to get some jobs, but I was semi-functionally illiterate for the most part because I had been, in the 10, 10 years I'd gone to school, I'd been to 16 different schools. And um, so it was, it was harder to study when you're constantly worrying about the dynamics of being the new kid on the block. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, while I started off rough and, and those those experiences left me with sort of a residual complex post-traumatic stress throughout my life, 
Um, I, mm-hmm. I had a, a unique benefit of um, being offered to um, someone offered to somehow believed in me. I don't know. I don't know why. Um, but they um, actually, I was I was actually um, in prayer one day trying to ask decide if I should send my first wife to work so I could change jobs just long enough so I could change jobs because I had a I was driving produce trucks at the time about 14 hours a day six days a week and it was kind of beating me down and um, I just got this super strong impression that I should apply for college and and I'd never ever thought about college I thought that was a ridiculous idea I figured I figured I got my cosmic channels mixed up with somebody I said okay this obviously isn't meant for me um, but yeah. it, it just it was really strong. And so I, I, I called the University of Arizona. I asked them for an application. I got the application. I, I was I had to get my first wife's help to actually read and complete the application. That's how that's how pathetic I was. And um, I had never taken SAT scores. Um, um, and and so I, I long story short, two weeks later, I got an acceptance letter. And, and and this was like a month before school was supposed to start. So I looked wow. at that and I think my first impression was, wow, man, I used to think college was for all the really smart kids. They'll let anybody into college. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I was 18 units deficient on the basic minimum requirements. It was all these weird, miraculous kind of things that kind of were out of my the control. But I still didn't have any money. So I threw the I threw the the um the letter away and i think it was the very next day or two days after that um i got a a letter from my father-in-law who um was very concerned with my ability to provide for his daughter and um but felt that i had a tough life and had some potential and if i was willing to do the hard work of working to support myself he would do the hard work of paying my tuition and books and um so i accepted and uh, to be honest, the first few years were very rough. I was struggling to get D's and C's and thinking that this was a waste of his money and my time. And But something I didn't want to give up. I knew in my heart that that was my one ticket out of poverty and that uh, giving up would essentially be accepting a life of, of, of poverty. And, and I, I didn't. I, I worked tirelessly oftentimes 18 hours a day between work and school and family life. And um, somewhere around halfway in the middle, things started really clicking, and I started doing exceptionally well. So oh, that's well, wonderful. Um, I, I made a deal with the dean of the business college. Now, I was an economics undergrad with a finance and computer science minors, and I made a deal with him. One of the things I had to do to graduate was to build a macroeconomic model, uh, which is basically a very complicated math, nonlinear regression probability model that would predict GNP, unemployment, interest rates a few quarters out. And all of the banks do these. Uh, the Federal Reserve does these type of models. All the universities build their own models to try and get as good as or better than the banks. And so I made him a deal. I said, well, if I can beat everybody else in, in the school, would you give me, would you consider a scholarship for me? And, and um, he, he agreed that he would consider it. And um, so I went about the business of trying to build my model. And I was in the data center for months, uh, every night from like midnight to 8 a.m. because that's when it was least crowded and I could get as much access to the computers as I wanted. 
Uh, I went through hundreds and hundreds of iterations of my model, and I was based on a theory that I had that hadn't been proven yet. And the theory was that um, our economy is the, what was driving the um, the errors in most of the other models is that none of them were accounting for the productivity gains of technology. They were only counting the dollar value of the technology sold. And so I developed a way to predict that. And as it turned out, my model outperformed the Federal Reserve, outperformed all the major banks, outperformed every other university in the country. And I got my scholarship. I got an acceptance into Harvard. Um, I, um, it got me a job at, at um, interim job at IBM for my grad school. So it was the first. It was the proof for me that the pathway for me to to change my stars was an undying um, perseverance. That um, even though it was hard, hard was only defined by how much work I was willing to put into getting it done. And so that changed my life, and that started my career, and that started um, um, a whole different life for me, and, and uh, it was an amazing experience. Um, after that, then I went on to work for IBM, and then I worked for an international oil company, Occidental, um, working directly with all of the senior-level executives and the board directors themselves. Um, uh, at, at, I, did, I worked for them for about 13 years before I switched and, and did some startup work, then I worked with Oracle and Unisys and then ultimately Microsoft. And um, I was known as an innovator, always trying to look at the latest technologies and, and trying to figure out how they could improve operations. So I was an um, early adapter of um, the Internet for global communications. I was an early adapter of uh, um, multi-site networking, uh, linked networking systems. Um, I was an early adapter of um, what, an early stage form of artificial intelligence called not, uh, expert knowledge systems. And so I was constantly yeah. pushing the edge in terms of um, our ability to use technology to do um, to work better, faster, and, 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 um, and, and less expensive. And so that was kind of how I built a career. But during that time, I, one of the things that I, I think um, – influenced me the most about college was learning about the men of the Renaissance. And that became a real theme for me for many years. Men of the Renaissance were well-trained and practiced in a, num a variety of different things. They were what we would call a generalist. Um, while our economy and most of our jobs really try and strive for somebody who's a specialist in something, um, they were striving to have people who were well-balanced in science, uh, religion, art, politics, business, um, where they could converse and understand and interpret, you know, kind of um, interpret life through all of those lenses. And so while I was at my career, I also um, uh, you know, wrote songs. I wrote songs for uh, Disney Records for a little while. I uh, recorded some amount of CDs. I love the ocean, so I, I, so I, I bought a large sailing ship and, and um, earned a Coast Guard charter captain license so I could take people on great trips. Um, I was a, um, a, a certified scuba diver, and I used to like going diving. My favorite dives were with sharks, um, believe it or not. Um, um, that, that, that 
that was not that was not the activity that my my my, my current wife really liked. Uh, <laughs> I, I went shark diving on our honeymoon, and she was like, "Are you kidding me?" <laughs> she says, "I'm going to be a widow before I'm not, before I'm a wayward woman." You know, <laughs> so there was always a little bit of I was always a little bit of um, um, willing to stretch the edges a little bit too far. I think sometimes. Um, but I think that kind of defines a lot of who I am. I, I get a, obsessed with certain mysteries and will spend years um, solving them or researching them. Um, mm-hmm. One of them was a time when I was reading a National Geographic article, and it was talking about the um, the loss of our um, the fo- loss of fish stocks and all of the global uh, major fishing um, grounds. And I had somehow read a passage in Revelations that talked about um, the end times having a third of the fish of the sea dying, a third of the birds of the air, a third of the beasts of the land. And I started realizing that I had been reading all of those various types of articles in National Geographic for a number of years. And so I, rather than trying to deal with all of the allegories of, of prophecy, I tried to say, well, what are the outcomes? What are the the outcomes that I can go back and 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 correlate to documented evidence, right, of some mm-hmm. of it being being completed, and I built a spent three days basically building a fairly complicated um, regression analysis and probability model that basically tried to look at well what are the prob- what is the likelihood that all of these things would happen? I did chose about fifteen different prophecies because I wanted a small sample set and, and something, each one with good, strong scientific documentation. And I wanted to come up with, you know, what's the probability that we're actually living in the end times? And um, that came up with an astounding number of 1 in 1.4 trillion that it was a random chance, uh, which told me that I needed to pay attention to the world around me in a different way. And um, so that was just one example. Um, Another example, and all of these examples somehow filter into my book over the years. Uh, another example was, um, go ahead, if you had a question. Oh, no, um, I was, I was um, going to, okay. uh, not yet, well, I, another, I was just waiting. <laughs> yeah, another example was, um, I was, my, my son, I was a single parent for my, uh, a teenage or preteen son, and um, we, I was a single parent for about 10 years before I met my second wife. And during that time, he was he loved to read, and, and like most boys in that preteen age, they liked you know adventure and hardy boys and pirates and lost treasure and lost civilizations. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I wanted to write him a short story and, and um, that he could read. And, and so I started. I like to base things off of you know a, a good story that's based off of something real. And so I stumbled onto a real story of Henry Morgan. Now. Um, most people are, are not necessarily that aware, but in 1672, the real Henry Morgan, not the rum, uh, they, they named the rum after him, um, um, took 36 ships, 2,000 men to raid the city of Panama. And ultimately, long story short, after several months of torturing people and doing all that kind of stuff, he came back with 30 tons, a billion dollars worth of plunder, and 600 slaves. But when he reached his fleet, he cheated all of his men, and disappeared with almost the entire treasure on three ships and 500 slaves, um, none of it ever seen again. Um, but Morgan survived, and he showed up in Jamaica about four months later, And but the British had arrested, arrested him immediately because his raid on Panama broke a peace treaty um, with Spain. 
But when he got to England, he, they found they thought he was a hero. So they knighted him as Sir Henry Morgan, uh, sent him back to Jamaica with a garrison of soldiers as lieutenant governor. So he had power, he had people, and they told him to get rid of piracy. But instead of going after any pirates except for one man who cheated him in Jamaica in Panama before he cheated everybody else, um, he went into this haunted, drunken debauchery and never went after his plunder, billion-dollar plunder, and he burned his logbooks before he died. Then after he died, three years after he died, the whole city of Port Real sank into the ocean, including Morgan's grave. And at the time, many of the locals said they'd been cursed by Morgan. Now, all of that is true, and it captivated me. So I spent well over a decade trying to figure out what happened to 30 tons of stuff, three ships, and 500 souls. And then what happened to Morgan that traumatized him so severely, so deeply, that he would give up a billion-dollar plunder. That journey not only led me to plausible scenarios of who, there's, uh, where it went, who found a piece of it, um, and why he wouldn't go back that connected to an island conquered by Morgan's uncle, Edward Morgan, that was turned into a pirate base. That same island, the Spanish had conquered 100 years earlier, and there was an Inquisition massacre that killed everybody on the island and ended a 2,000-year pilgrimage to the island before anyone found out why people were canoeing 50 miles to this island. Um, that pilgrimage connected me to the 5,000-year Mayan calendar and the Mayan creation myth. And once I understood the Mayan creation myth, I was able to go in basically interpret some of the Mayan end of the world prophecies. So that took me well over 10 years. And by that point, my son was already grown. <laughs> so writing him a book, it was like, okay, well, this needs to be an adult book. And um, that became one of my books. So that was the backstory for one of my books. So I, can, I get very obsessed about certain questions. And, um, yes. and because I, that's what kind of, I guess, when you say who I am, I'm sort of this artistic um, nerd <laughs> mm -hmm. in, in that sense, um, where I, I, I'm always looking to try and answer a question that maybe seems, in some cases, unanswerable. Okay, that was excellent. And then tell us about the true story inspiration for your thriller, Swarm. Oh, that was another amazing story and another experience where I couldn't put a situation down. Um, in my career, I would always like to read. I was in oil and gas at the time, uh, and, and so I, I read a lot of science, a lot of geology. I was trying to understand chemical, EPA, environmental issues. And I happened to stumble on an article. It was an Associated Press article. And um, so I, I knew it wasn't just somebody pulling baloney out of their, out of their head. Um, but the article was just a very short article. It only had two very short paragraphs, maybe three or four sentences. And it basically said that a program had escaped the Lawrence Livermore Laboratories at Sandia. And if I knew anything, to contact this professor or that FBI agent in charge of the investigation. And that was it. It, it didn't say anything else. I couldn't find I, – I looked all around other magazines, other sources. I couldn't find any other place where um, I could see any other information about that. And my first thought was, okay, well – there's there's somebody at the Associated there's either somebody at the Associated Press who's going to get um, a, a ding on their career for a typo that maybe it should have said the program was lost or maybe it was stolen or maybe it was didn't not it malfunctioned but the verb that they used was that the program had escaped 
And so then I thought, well, maybe somebody at the NSA lab, so, so Lawrence Livermore Laboratories is an NSA spy lab. So I'm starting to look at this and I'm thinking, okay, it's telling me that a spy program has escaped the NSA spy labs and they're looking for help. They don't know how to find it. <laughs> that's a cool story. That's an amazing piece of, you know, for two short paragraphs, that's a lot of punch. And um, so I actually became obsessed with this. I kept thinking, okay, well, what if it's true? Um, what if it wasn't a typo? And so I used my understanding of various technologies, and I tried to come up with plausible architectures and, and techniques. And, and how I wanted to answer three questions. How could a program escape the NSA labs? Um, which implied intelligence. Escape implies intelligence. It implies an intent. It implies the ability to move itself, and then it applies the ability to erase its trail in all the computer logs so that people can't say, well, it moved from here to there. Um, so that's, that's pretty amazing capability. So then it came to my second question was, okay, so what was the NSA trying to do that it needed a program that could do all of that really, really cool super spy stuff? And so I spent a few months going through my, my, my office and my data center and and looking at various ways that I would want a program to basically do spy stuff. Um, turn, on, turn on your camera or your microphone on your computer without turning on the light so you don't know it's on. Um, use the, use a, uh, a um, back then we had um, widescreen um, monitors that basically reverse the polarity on the monitor to be able to use it as sort of a rudimentary camera. Um, even what we now call, um, and, and I, I had a number of other, spoofing your keyboard and, and uh, all kinds of other things that I had basically kind of come up with. And, I, and then I had to kind of determine, well, why do I think it left? What happened that I thought the program basically left and never came back? And so I, at the time, uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Jack Teeter, had a film production company named Sojourn Entertainment. And um, we, he was looking for great ideas. And so I, I brought this great idea to him, and, and he was excited. And But instead of doing a movie pilot or a screenplay, we said, well, this is an Internet-based program was one of the things I had determined. And back then, the Internet was fairly young and, and, um, and, and kind of nuanced. And, and so I said, well, let's, um, let's produce a webisode series instead. So we did. We hired out-of-work actors. We wrote scripts. I did all the programming in the HTML. We basically produced the show. It was a huge hit. Mm -hmm. We got like 24 different web awards. Um, we had fans from China to Israel to Europe to um, all over the place. Um, one of my biggest fans was a I, I didn't know him by anything other than his alias for the longest time. He used to write me almost every week. Uh, and his alias, get this, was orbit at nasa.gov. So he wasn't guy.morrisett at nasa, or he wasn't guy at nasa, as if everyone would know who guy is. Um, but he was orbit. So that's that's pretty cool alias. That's like saying I'm, I'm rocket man, you're moonwalker, you know, I'm going to be orbit. That's a guy that's pretty high up there, you know, he's, He's got some um, some creds and, and the, a little bit of pull to say, no, I, I want a really cool alias. So I finally mm -hmm. figured out, uh, he finally told me, and he was the um, director at the time, he was the director of flight operations for the Houston Space Center. He taught all the astronauts how to fly the space shuttle. Uh, so two weeks uh, and then a studio basically optioned the show. 
two weeks before the studio was going to exercise their option, two FBI agents showed up at my door. Um, oh. they, I, they were rather perturbed that I had figured out something they thought was supposed to be top secret and then had the um, audacity to actually write about it. And um, while the, I was internally giving myself a fist bump saying yes, um, my wife was freaking out, thinking, thinking what have I done? Am I going to go to jail? You know, who did I hack? What, what did I do? You know, why are two yeah. FBI agents sitting at my dining room table? <laughs> so yeah, I, they wanted me to take down the show. I told them no. I, I laughed at them and told them no. They didn't like my sense of humor either, I guess. Um, mm. But they ultimately went back to the studio and killed the deal. So I, I lost a lot of money. I tucked my tail between my legs. I went and got a job that I think was a startup and then Oracle at that point. And then I huh. went from there to Microsoft. And, and But all of these years, I I never forgot that. And I, that, that story never left me. Now, in 2016, my analysis was further confirmed when um, CNN reported that Russia had hacked the CIA cyber toolkit. And in that toolkit was virtually every single one of the programmable capabilities I had determined for this missing program, including what we now call the deep fake video technology. So that's the technology that can take Camille's voice or take Camille's um, video image and digitize mm -hmm. it and then manipulate it so that it gets you saying something or doing something you didn't really do. And it's used for misinformation, could be used for espionage, could be used for, you know, imagine an executive basically calling his secretary and saying, Suzanne, I can't remember my password again. What is it? Right. Um, yes. So that character, that program became a character in my espionage books. And that was sort of the initial thrust of what was uh, of, of those stories. And I continued to do research. Um, I continued to try and understand, well, how, is, how are governments using cyber tools to do espionage? How are, how are they using artificial intelligence to do these things? What are the roles of these technologies that are hidden under the covers that most people will never see that um, make the world a scarier place in a sense? And, um, and I wanted to, so that became sort of those, um, and what I ultimately did in the books was I combined that theme of advanced technologies being used in uh, malicious, nefarious ways um, with the theme that I had developed a few years earlier that of how to, um, using math and, and programmable elements, determine whether or not we had entered end time prophecy. And in the story, the computer program that has escaped uh, in the fictional sense has now reached what we call sentient singularity. Now, what that means is sentient means that it's self-aware. It has a, a, a perception of itself as a separate entity from us and that it differently in construction and, and, and worldview than us. And then singularity means it's as smart as a smart human. So it's a self-aware, um, super smart AI. And that, and I named it. I named it Sylvia. So sophisticated language, virtual intelligence algorithm. And so the Sylvia has now decoded end time prophecy. And none of the other characters really understand really what it means. It's a fugitive program. It's working with underground people in the dark web. And they don't understand what that means. And so it, it creates a premise for me 
to not only explore um, technologies that are racing ahead of our morals and our laws and our ability to control them, and including all the ways that AI is dangerous, um, and that's a whole separate topic. Elon Musk, Bill Gates, Stephen Hawking have all warned against artificial intelligence, and I go into some of the reasons why. Um, and then the corruption, how it's being polluting our espionage um, and infecting that, and and then combining that with sort of um, sort of the hubris of man, you know, the, the how our politics are becoming corrupt, how um, church and, and religious movements have become politicized um, and, and corrupted, um, things like climate change, population, um, hunger crisis, all of these major crises I can pull into this sort of um, sphere, literary sphere mm-hmm. of an artificial intelligence that has decoded end-time prophecy and leading the characters to discover how these dots connect. Uh, and so that became okay. the premise of the two books. Okay. Oh, wow. That's a lot. That's excellent. Excellent. But I, I, I only have uh, two minutes left. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah, we have... Yeah, we have 30 minutes, um, but I'm, I'm going to see if maybe you could um, reschedule, like schedule another day to come back on because, uh, and then I can do, yeah, I can um, schedule it for longer um, because you are so interesting. And I'm just like, whoa, I'm just like really amazed. So at any rate, uh, before you go, can you just let our audience know what your favorite hot beverage is or coffee Oh my, well, I'm I'm a, I'm a coffee drinker. Um, that's okay. that's my go juice. Um, I, I yes. get up in the morning. I'll have two or three cups of coffee. I'll you have a okay. one piece of toast, a half banana, and between yes. that, a few cups of coffee. That's my go. Yeah. Okay. And, and I, Wonderful. I, I, I used to drink it black, but my wife bought this. Um, little tiny cup thing that actually foams up the coffee. And I found that I, I, huh. I've really kind of grown addicted to sort of my coffee with this little foamy milk on top of it. So it's sort of like a latte, yeah. but a homemade latte. Yes. And so that that's uh, that's my go-to. Uh, and then I after that, I'll go to Earl Grey. Earl Grey, got it. All right. Thank you so much, Guy, for coming on. Thank you. And, um, yes, it's just a pleasure listening to you. And... Um, Okay, and that ends our show, actually. So thank you for now. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're welcome. Bye.